Let's continue this morning in this recap of the book of Romans in chapter 6, Slaves of Righteousness. Paul begins his letter to the Romans. Some have called the greatest letter that was ever written by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel, that he is instead eagerly obliged to it. A gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, the wrath of God revealed against men, and the righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for them, where he redeems them, literally ransoms them back to himself, a people for his own name, through propitiation, the literal purchasing of our lives with the lifeblood of Christ in order that it may be truly said about him, the one who is just is also the justifier. For Abraham believed God, and that belief was reckoned to him as something more than it was. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, the very power of God on display, for faith is not magic, and the moment of belief is not an incantation. Faith is not powerful in and of itself. People have faith in all sorts of things. It does them absolutely no good. But instead, the power lies in the one in whom our faith is placed. For the one in whom we have faith is faithful. Because of that, salvation is by faith and for faith. Paul says that the gospel is coming from somewhere. And it is going somewhere directly to the glory of God and the joy of His people. And we, as we've even seen here today, having been justified by faith in that, we rejoice. Literally, Paul says, we boast in the hope of God that accompanies salvation's faith. For we were dead, born in the image of Adam from dust and to dust. But we boast in God because in Christ we live. Do you know your identity? What it really means to be a Christian? And not just some social or cultural definition, but what it really means according to the very word of God who calls something to exist out of nothing and life from death. Do you know what it means to to be one? What is a saint except for one who by means of the baptism of the Holy Spirit died with Christ, was buried with Christ, and has been risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life, the newness of life. So today... Last week, you see the testimony of what it means to be baptized, to be plunged into Christ. And Paul said, having been baptized into him, we have put him on. We have literally been enveloped by him. What does that look like? Well, this morning you've already heard some of what it looks like in practice. Let's consider what Paul has to say about what that new life 
is and is not, what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. And first, with Paul in the negative, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15 through 16, Paul continues and says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, not being. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? So considering this newness of life that we walk in that is from faith and for faith that is the salvation of God revealed to the people of God. What does that look like to walk in? And the first thing Paul says that it does not look like is not using grace as a license for iniquity. Not using the mercy of God as an excuse to go out and do something that in turn would deserve mercy. As a matter of fact, in your Bibles, once again this morning, Paul does this over and over. I don't know why we translate it this way. It's translated as no means. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, the ESV says. So does your King James Version. It's a poor translation. What is spoken of in the Greek here has nothing to do with the concept of means but only to do with the concept of existence of what it means to be. Paul's not saying by no means should we do these things, by no means should we take that approach as though it were simply the improper approach. Instead, what he is saying is not being. The idea that we could use the grace of God to increase our own iniquity, Paul says, is a concept that is not consistent with what it means to be a Christian. That it is foreign both to the obedience and to the heart of what it means to be the new creation. Instead, what Paul says we are to be is obedient slaves. Slaves to Christ. Christ, the exact measure and manifestation of the perfect law of God. For we were baptized into Christ. An act on his part of perfect obedience to the Father, which in turn united us in both a death like his and a resurrection like his, that we were dead to sin and made alive to God. And our conclusion is thus, that in saving us, friends, Christ bound us to himself. And this is the first half of Romans chapter 6. This is machine gun review. That in saving us, Christ didn't just put our name on a different list. He bound us to himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. He bound us to himself just as he himself was bound. For we are saved in order that we might be conformed to his image, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, Being bound to him, in turn, we are bound just as he himself was bound to the obedience of his Father. What do we say then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Not being. That is not what he has made us, that is not what we have become. 
What we have become is conformed to his likeness. And the joy of the heart of obedience to a holy and perfect father. What it does look like is chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, where Paul continues and says, But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. All right, Larry, this is for you and for me and for all of us who have been called according to his purpose. You, who were once slaves to sin, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And let me tell you, what we rejoice in today, what we rejoice in every time, that an enemy of Christ is made the child of Christ, is not simply in a decision made. It is not simply even in a life changed. It is in the goodness of God displayed. And this is His power. This is what He does. In this we rejoice. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. All right, what the newness of life does not look like. It does not look like using the good things of God as the means in which to fulfill the desires of a flesh that is his, his enemy. What it does look like, that for which we give thanks, is that we who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. New life looks like obedience. Doesn't look like checking a box. Doesn't look like writing down a date in the back of your Bible. Doesn't look like certainty because your, your preacher or, or your parents or, or your friend told you so. The newness of life in its manifestation and its walking looks like obedience. And obedience in a very particular way, not to some particular dogma, not to some legalism, but a very specific standard of which was delivered to you. And that is, Paul says, the teaching that you were taught. This teaching that he speaks of is the very teaching that is necessary unto salvation. It is the same teaching that he speaks to a young Timothy about when he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verses 14 through 17, and he says this, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed that which Timothy has been taught. As for 
for you, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. This thing that Timothy has learned because he has been taught from some very specific people is a teaching for which obedience to will make one wise, not just knowledgeable. Man, this teaching is that this is not like the teaching you get at school. This is not teaching that simply fills your head full of knowledge. This is a very particular kind of teaching that is powerful in and of itself in that it is able not only to fill your head and heart with knowledge, but it is able to make you wise in such a way that you arrive at salvation. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The standard of teaching to which we must obey is a teaching that is necessary for us to come to salvation. It includes both what we've learned and from where we learned it. In Timothy's case, in all of our cases, what we learned was the sacred writings, the law, and the prophets, out of which comes, Scripture tells us, the knowledge of Christ, the revelation of the gospel. For in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All too often, all too often we relegate the law and the prophets to simply moralistic stories that we teach children when it was Jesus himself that said every single word of this law speaks about nothing less than him. You search it, he told the Pharisees. You think in it you will find eternal life, and indeed you will, because what it speaks about is me, Christ said. What Timothy learned was the sacred writings of the Law and the Prophets. Where he learned it was first from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. We find that out back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. This is why Paul says, Remember what you learned from the time you were a child. He learned it also directly from Paul himself. Back in chapter 3, in verse 10, Paul says, You, that being Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Timothy had learned, he'd been taught from the sacred writings of the law and the prophets, he had been taught from the apostle himself, both one-on-one -on -one and the epistles that he wrote, including this one that is addressed direct, directly to Timothy himself. Now, how about that for an education? If Paul writes an epistle to you, the law, the prophets, the apostles, all necessary for the standard of obedience. For Paul will conclude 
his letter to the Romans in chapter 16 and verse 25 through 27 and says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has been now disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about to bring about what the newness of life looks like, to bring about the obedience of faith according to the standard of Paul's gospel, according to the standard of the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the standard of the law and the prophets. All of these things to bring about not some kind of generalized obedience that belongs to this denomination or that denomination or to Jew or to Gentile, but the standard of this to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore. So today you see the obedience of faith standing before your very eyes. And we don't say, oh, praise Lily, she's done so good. We say to the only wise God, be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. This teaching is the wisdom of salvation. And you will find it in none else. What's interesting to me is the dichotomy that you see throughout the writings of Paul, but so clearly here in chapter 6 between obedience to a very particular standard that is very clear and defined. Man, I bet he was a good Pharisee. <laughs> I bet he was a good one. He knows it inside and out. The dichotomy between the obedience of this standard of which Christ is the perfect manifestation and the place from which it comes in the manner of that obedience. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. From the heart. Not from the mind. Not from the grit of your will. Not by putting your nose to the grindstone or the strap to your shoulder or giving it the good old college try. But thanks be to God, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. The obedience of faith that comes from the heart. It comes from the heart, man. Now at this point, you may say to yourself, look, what? Okay. Paul will throw you you know, he will throw you the curveball. There is no doubt about it. But this is a pretty big curveball because the verbiage to this point and the imagery to this point has been nothing but slavery, obedience, and being delivered over to something. Man, you were slaves to sin, you're now slaves to righteousness. You were obedient to sin, now you're obedient to righteousness. 
You were delivered over to sin, now you're delivered over to righteousness. All you see here in context is the verbiage of absolute slavery. And in the midst of it, this concept that the whole thing is being driven not against your will, but according to it. And the saints exist in a slavery of very unique circumstance. We don't have time to do like the whole verb river today. Because when we did this bolt by bolt and nut by nut, we did the verb river and it took three weeks. So we're not going to do that today. But let's look at the progression that the Holy Spirit is explaining through Paul as he moves through Romans chapter 6 about the nature of what it means to present yourself to something. In Romans chapter 6, verse 13, Paul had written this, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And so here we've got this idea that you're going to present yourself. You're, you're going to show up before the king. You're going to show up before the sovereign. You're going to show up before your creator. And you are going to deliver yourself. And there's a particular way that this needs to be done. You present your members. That is to say, all of the bits and pieces of you that we would kind of wad up into a big ball and call the flesh or the old man as opposed to the new creation. The actual flesh. The thoughts, the desires, the whole bit. You take your members and you present them as instruments of righteousness. The whole ball of wax, the new creation, the flesh. Man, this is not some kind of weird Gnosticism. We talk about two realities. No, you take it all. You take the part that, that is the new creation, that is by nature an instrument of righteousness. You take the part that's the flesh, that is by nature not an instrument of righteousness, and you present them as such. You present them as instruments for righteousness. This is not optional. This is what you do. You present them even if they don't want to be presented that way. <laughs> and let me tell you, brother, they're going to kick, bite, scratch, and claw. You present them as instruments, as righteousness, even if they don't want to be, be presented that way. Because when you talk about those who have been resurrected from death to life, the reality is, is the new creation drives the bus, folks. The new creation is the one that is in charge of you if you're it. When it comes to personal identity, you can't say the devil made me do it. I got to tell you, Half the time we say the devil made me do it, what we really mean is my flesh made me do it, and I'd rather not call myself the devil. 
The reality is, it is the new creation that sits on the throne of the life of the saint. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. God is never going... He's never going to be overcome by His creation. And this is, this is what Paul talks about. I know it's not on the page, but... And this is the kind of stuff that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, Let's back up to verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And that is not simply from outside of us, but from in us we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I say that because of what Lily said this morning. The reality is that what we do as slaves of righteousness is present our members as obedient slaves to righteousness even when they don't want to even when our enemies certainly don't want them to and the reality is it is no small thing to destroy lofty arguments and strongholds it is no small thing to take every thought captive I loved what was said. This isn't some little cartoon devil sitting on your shoulder. Oh man. It is convincing. You won't just hear it. You will feel it. Doubt. Fear. Deception at every turn. What you do is you take that right on up there and present it as an instrument for righteousness. You take every thought captive, you destroy every stronghold. This is what you do. Paul doesn't say, give it your good old college try. He says, do it. That's kind of the nature of speaking to slaves. Do it. He doesn't stop there. Paul continues in chapter 6 and verse 16. In verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? And so first Paul gives this command and he says, Here's what you do. You go and present your members as slaves to righteousness. And then he reminds you, if you do this, having done that, you have become a slave to righteousness. For you actually are the slave of that thing which you present yourself to, either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to life. Friends, the reality is, like it or not, all men are slaves to something. 
16.19, or in 6.19, sorry. Paul will say, as we read already today, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You used to present it to this, now you present it to that. You used to present it to lawlessness and purity, but now instead you present yourselves as slaves of righteousness that leads to sanctification so that you become more righteous, which leads to presenting your members to righteousness, which leads to sanctification so that you become more righteous. So if you can follow the flow there of 13, 16, and 19, what Paul says is this. Present yourself. Present yourself before God. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, whether your members like it or not. For all men are slaves to something. We are commanded to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And the result is that having become slaves to obedience, by default, we become slaves to obedience end, which is more righteousness. Slaves of righteousness that leads to sanctification, that leads to setting yourself apart to God and further presenting yourselves as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification, which leads to further presenting yourself, which leads to sanctification. It's not a vicious cycle, it's a holy cycle by which the people of God are conformed more and more and more and more to the image of Christ. Now guys, that's pretty straightforward. And the language in it is slave language from top to bottom. It is full of obligation. There is no doubt about it. The only way that you can write the obligation out of that package, pa passage is to literally take the Sharpie and black it out of the passage. It's obligation from stem to stern. And yet, right smack dab in the middle, is Romans chapter 6, verse 17. I mean, literally right in the middle. 13, 16, 19, bam! In the middle of this absolute cycle that's like, man, it's like the wheel on the lathe. Don't get, if you get caught, man, you're in it. <laughs> right in the middle of it. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Friends, the saints have an obligation. Don't let any heretic tell you otherwise. And yet that obligation is not like any other slavery that exists in the entire universe. For it is not an enslavement that comes to us from outside, but it is an enslavement that God has put in us when as He promised His people from of old, He removed the heart of stone from their flesh and replaced it with a heart that lives. This is the goodness of our God. Not that He removed us from slavery that was going to kill us to slavery that was going to let us live in some form of perpetual and unbearable enslavement. 
but that he put in us a heart that by its own deepest and greatest desire would desire every bit of obedience that it could present before him. That the highest joy of the heart of the people of God would be to do exactly what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit commanded. And anywhere that we're short on that in the flesh today, we're going to present that as a member to obedience as well because the heart of the new creation burns with an eternal fire that will overcome the flesh at every opportunity. We desire that which sets before us. And we look forward to the day when everything that is wood, hay, and stubble is consumed. And we stand before him complete. Saints have an obligation, all right, to be obedient slaves, and yet this does not come from outside of us. It comes from the very desires of our own heart and the natural mind. But ask, how can these two things be joined? No one loves to be enslaved. I mean, sure, you can look back to antiquity and you can see you know, you can see the Israelites, well, at that point we should probably more properly call them Jews. We, we can see the Jews enslaved. We can see them enslaved in Babylon. We can see them enslaved to Medo-Persia. And certainly, I mean, if you're going to take, if you're going to have to make the choice between, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, man, I'll go Cyrus every day. None of those Jews were satisfied to be enslaved to Cyrus. It was just the lesser of two evils. And even have been, having been enslaved to the Persians who were much more, much more friendly to them. Nehemiah stood before the king and wept. Wept for what was promised to him by God. Wept for what it meant to be back in the land that had been sworn to Abraham. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, Cyrus is better than Nebuchadnezzar. My question is, is, is there a third choice? <laughs> right? How about free? No one loves to be enslaved. And that's why Paul says in verse 19, I'm speaking to you in human terms. Because what's going on here is bigger, as smart as Paul was, as particular of a language as the Greek is, what's going on here is bigger than what human language has the ability to convey. It is not a secret knowledge. Man, it's held by millions, billions across the millennia. But it is a particular knowledge that can only be known by those who've experienced it. It can only be known. It can only be understood. This is deep calling to deep. It can only be conveyed to those who were once enslaved to sin, but now from the heart have become obedient to the standard of teaching which they were taught and have become slaves to righteousness. Paul says, I can't, he says, there is no human language that will actually explain what's going on here. So when I tell you, you were slaves to this, and now you're slaves to that, quit being slaves to this, be slaves to that, but you said if we present ourselves, we're slaves whether we like it or not. Yeah, I know, that's what I'm saying. There's something bigger going on here than what language has the ability to convey, and more than that, 
This is not the lesser of two evils. This is the difference between darkness and light, between death and life. If there was a third option, you wouldn't take it. This is as good as it gets. But that doesn't make sense with slavery. I know. Because God has things that aren't man's things. This is why the fear of God is good in Scripture. And every other fear is delineated as evil. Man, Jesus said, don't even fear the one that will kill you. But man, fear God. Man, God has things that aren't like man's things. The fear of God, man, man's fear causes you to flee. The fear of God draws his people near to him. Man's fear causes people to shudder. The fear of God causes his people to rejoice. God's got things that aren't like man's things. He's got a fear that's not like man's fear. He's got a slavery that's not like man's slavery. And it is a pity that what we want to do, because we have such an understanding of what man's slavery is and how horrific it is, that what we want to do is we want to come and go, well, God's not really talking about slavery. Oh, yes, he is. It's just a real bigger, different kind of slavery than what men know. It's not selling short. The problem's not with him. It's with our understanding. See? We're the little children, remember? If you're going to come to me, you've got to be like little children. You've got to figure out that you don't know as much as you think you know. Gospel enslavement is unlike any other enslavement among created beings man or angel. It is an enslavement that is entered into and maintained by the heart of the enslaved, by the power of the new creation. It is the motivation for a life lived in obedience unto the standard of God. It requires both obligation and desire. You can't have one or the other. Friends, you can't have one or the other. It requires obligation and desire. Obligation alone, without the heart that brings it, will produce nothing but dead, miserable, and always failing legalism. And you just beat yourself to death. Just get up every morning, look in the mirror, and hate yourself. Swear you're going to do better. Get up the next morning. Hate yourself some more. That's what you'll get. Desire alone? Oh, yeah, we know, right? We know. The, the, thing, the thing about humans is, is when you give them two options that in their mind seem to be contradictory with each other, what we often do is not look for what the actual logical argument at hand is, but instead construct an argument based off our preference, <laughs> right? And then we'll, we'll hold to its really good logic. But really what we're doing is we're, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're, we're backlogging the logic to, to end at where we want to end. And so when you go, okay, man, you can't have, you know, legalism, you go, oh yeah, legalism's hard, it's bad, nobody wants to be legalistic, right? We all know Pharisees, they were kind of jerks, didn't really go anywhere for them, and besides, there's all these rules you got to keep, and so on and so forth, and and so, you know, nobody wants to be the holier than that legalist. So let's, man, let's go with, you know, let's go with desire. But I'm telling you, desire alone 
without the standard of teaching to which you have been committed is every bit, if not more dangerous than legalism. And the only thing that makes it more dangerous is not the place that it ends up because they both end up busting the gate of hell right off its hinges. What makes it more dangerous is that it's easier to walk in. The thing about legalism alone is most people finally just get sick of it and quit. But man, desire alone, desire apart from obligation brings a separation from the standard of teaching to which you were committed and can be used to justify absolutely anything. Well, man, I really want this thing. I mean, God's good, and if I really desire it, he must want me to have it, so it must be God's will that I have it. 16-year-olds tell themselves that about automobiles. <laughs> Young entrepreneurs tell it to themselves about jobs and promotions and business decisions, and unfortunately, husbands tell them Sells that about wives, and wives tell them that about husbands. And man, he just makes me miserable, and God doesn't want me to be miserable. And man, desire alone, obligation alone, they both end in the same place. Not being is where they end. It's not what a Christian is. It's not the nature of the newness of life. The nature is obligation from the heart. Obligation that is not dead, cold legalism, not the drudgery of duty. Desire that is not the wild, unchecked desire of rebellion, but instead the two together that cause us to be sanctified, to look like the one to whom we have been bound. You must put the two together. Obligation to obedience and desire for obedience, which is exactly how Paul starts his gospel. Back in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Paul demonstrates what this looks like when he tells the Romans why he so desires to both write this letter and to come to them, and it is both out of obligation and desire. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. By the time we get to chapter 6, we understand that the reason that Paul is obligated is because his heart is eager. And his heart is eager because it has been bound to Christ in the newness of life. This is why Paul is able to write to... The Corinthians in his first letter in chapter 15 and verse 9, he says, This eagerness that I have that then obligates me is the result of the new creation. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. There's the guy that was presenting himself and his members as a slave to iniquity. 
that by the grace of God, I am who I am. Man, I'm speaking to you in human terms because there's an event here that happens that I really can't explain other than to say that it is the miracle of a good and gracious God, that it is the wrath of God manifest, that it is the righteousness of God manifest, that it is the salvation of God manifest from faith and for faith. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. You want the South Sebastian County translation? His grace works. It's not cheap talk. It works. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Why? Because I'm obligated. What obligated you, Paul? my heart that he put in me. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Walking in the newness of life looks like obligation to a very particular standard of teaching. A standard that is nothing less and nothing more than the law, the prophets, the gospels, and the apostles. It's an obligation that can come only from one place. Not from stodgy legalism. But from the heart of the new creation that was the very gift of God to you. And as Lily reminded us this morning, Dave, if you will but repent and believe, He will save you. Repent, believe in Jesus Christ, and the one who is faithful, the one who is faithful, will give you this heart. And it will bring about obedience and sanctification. It will bring about eternal life seeing Him face to face. I pray that you come. It's been a good day. Let's pray.